Chapter Nine of Highways and Byways in Sussex. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Highways and Byways in Sussex by E. V. Lucas. Chapter Nine: Amberley and Parham. Five miles to the north of Arundel by road, over the Arran at Houghton's ancient bridge, restored by the bishops of Chichester in the fifteenth century, and a few minutes by rail, is Amberley the fishing metropolis of Sussex, where, every Sunday in the season, London anglers meet to drop their lines in friendly rivalry. Amorley Trout, as Walton calls them, and Arundel Mullet are the best of the Arran's treasures, and this reminds me of Fuller's tribute to Sussex fish, which may well be quoted in this watery neighbourhood. Now, as this county is eminent for both sea and river fish, namely an Arundel mullet, a Chichester lobster, a Selsey cockle, and an Amelie trout, so Sussex aboundeth with more carps than any other of this nation, and though not so great as Jovius reporteth to be found in the Lurian lake in Italy, weighing more than fifty pounds, yet those generally of great and goodly proportion. I need not add that physicians account the galls of carps as also a stone in their heads, to be medicinable. Only I will observe that, because Jews will not eat caviar made of the sturgeon, because coming from a fish wanting scales, and therefore forbidden in the Levitical law, therefore the Italians make greater profit of the spawn of carps, whereof they make a red caviar, well pleasing the Jews both in palate and conscience. All I will add of carps is this, that Ramus himself doth not so much redound in dichotomies as they do, seeing no one bone is to be found in their body which is not forked or divided into two parts at the end thereof. Amberley proper, as distinguished from Amberley of the Anglers, is a mile from the station, and is built on a ridge. The castle is the extreme western end of this ridge, the north side of which descends precipitously to the marshy plain that extends as far as Pulborough. Standing on the castle, one sees Pulborough Church, due north, height calling unto height. The castle is now a farm. Indeed, all Amberley is a huge stockyard, smelling of straw and cattle. It is sheer Sussex, chalky soil, whitewashed cottages, huge wagons, and one of the best of Sussex painters, and in his exquisite, modest way, of all painters living, dwells in the heart of it. Edward Stott, who year after year shows London connoisseurs how the clear skin of the Sussex boy takes the evening light, and how the Southdown sheep drink at hill-ponds beneath a violet sky, and that there is nothing more beautiful under the stars than a whitewashed cottage, just when the lamp is lit. Amberley has no right to lay claim to a castle, for the old ruins are not truly, as they seem, the remains of a castellated stronghold, but of a crenellated mansion. John Langton, Bishop of Chichester in the fourteenth century, was the first builder. Previously the church lands here had been held very jealously, and in 1200 we find Bishop Gilbert de Leofar twice excommunicating, and as often absolving, the Earl of Arundel for poaching, as he termed it, in Houghton Forest. The church lost Amberley in the sixteenth century. 
William Reed, who succeeded Langton to both house and sea, wishing to feel secure in his home, craved permission to dig a moat around it, and to render it both hostile and defensive, hence its lion-like mien. But it has known no warfare, and the castle's mouldering walls now give what assistance they can in harbouring livestock. Twentieth-century sheds lean against fourteenth-century masonry. Faggots are stored in the moat. Lawn tennis is played in the courtyard, and black pigeons peep from the slits cut for arquebusiers. Amberley Castle only once intrudes itself in history. Charles II, during his flight in 1651, spent a night there under the protection of Sir John Briscoe, as we saw in Chapter 3. In winter, if you ask an Amberley man where he dwells, he says, Amberley, God help us. In summer, he says, Amberley, where would you live? From Amberley to Parham, one keeps upon a narrow ridge for a mile or so, branching off then to the left. Parham's advance guard is seen all the way, a clump of fir trees indicating that the soil there changes to sand. For two possessions is Parham noted, a heronry in the park, and in the house a copy of Montaigne, with Shakespeare's autograph in it. The house, a spreading Tudor mansion, is the seat of Lord Zouche, a descendant of the traveller Robert Curzon, who wrote The Monasteries of the Levant, that long, leisurely, and fascinating narrative of travel. In addition to Montaigne, it enshrines a priceless collection of armour, of incunabula, and eastern manuscripts. Among the pictures are full lengths of Sir Philip Sidney and Lady Sidney, and that Penelope Darcy, one of Mr. Hardy's noble dames, who promised to marry three suitors in turn, and did so, we see her again at Furl Place. A hiding-hole for priests and other refugees is in the long gallery, access to it being gained through a window-seat. There was hidden Charles Paget after the Babington conspiracy. Parham Park has deer and a lake and an enchanted forest of sombre trees. On the highest ground in this forest is the clump of firs in which the famous herons build. The most interesting time to visit the heronry is in the breeding season, for then one sees the lank birds continually homing from the Amberley wild brooks, with fishes in their bills and long legs streaming behind. The noise is tremendous, beyond all rookeries. Mr. Knox's ornithological rambles, from which I have already quoted freely, has this passage. The herons at Parham assemble early in February, and then set about repairing their nests, but the trees are never entirely deserted during the winter months. A few birds, probably some of the more backward of the preceding season, roosting among their boughs every night. They commence laying early in March, and the greater part of the young birds are hatched during the early days of April. About the end of May they may be seen to flap out of their nests to the adjacent boughs, and bask for hours in the warm sunshine, but although now comparatively quiet during the day, they become clamorous for food as the evening approaches, and indeed for a long time appear to be more difficult to wean, and less able to shift for themselves than most birds of a similar age. They may be observed as late as August, still on the trees, screaming for food and occasionally fed by their parents who forage for them assiduously 
indeed these exertions so far from being relaxed after the setting of the sun appear to be redoubled during the night for i have frequently disturbed herons when riding by moonlight among the low grounds near the river where i have seldom seen them during the day and several cottagers in the neighbourhood of parham have assured me that their shrill cry may be heard at all hours of the night during the summer season as they fly to and fro overhead on their passage between the heronry and the open country the history or genealogy of the progenitors of this colony is remarkable they were originally brought from coity castle in wales by lord leicester's steward in james i's time to penhurst in kent the seat of lord delisle where their descendants continued for more than two hundred years from thence they migrated to mitchell grove about seventy miles from penshurst and eight from parham here they remained for nearly twenty years until the proprietor of the estate disposed of it to the late duke of norfolk who having purchased it not as a residence but with the view of increasing the local property in the neighbourhood of arundel pulled down the house and felled one or two trees on which the herons had constructed their nests the migration commenced immediately but appears to have been gradual for three seasons elapsed before all the members of the heronry had found their way over the downs to their new quarters in the fir woods of parham this occurred about seventeen years ago written about eighteen forty eight sussex says mr borer author of the birds of sussex has two other large heronries at windmill hill place near hailsham and breed near winchelsea and some smaller ones one being at molecombe above goodwood betsy's oak in parham park is said to be so called because queen elizabeth sat beneath it but another and more probable legend calls it bates's oak after bates an archer at agincourt in the retinue of the earl of arundel and in henry v good queen bess however dined in the hall of parham house in fifteen ninety two at northiam in east sussex we shall come not to be utterly balked to a tree under which she truly did sit and dine too beyond parham less than two miles to the east is storrington a quiet sussex village far from the rail and the noise of the world with the downs within hail and fine sparsely inhabited country between them and it to wander in the church is largely modern i find the following sententious paragraph in the county paper for seventeen ninety two this is an age of sights and polite entertainment in the country as well as in the city the little town of storrington has lately been visited by a company of comedians a mountebank doctor and a puppet show one day the doctor's jack pudding finding the shillings coming in but slowly exclaimed to his master gad sir it is not worth our while to stay here any longer players have got all the gold we all the silver and punch all the copper so like sagacious locusts let us migrate from the place we helped to impoverish this reminds me that i saw recently at petworth whither we are now moving a travelling circus whose programme included a comic interlude that cannot have received the slightest modification since it was first planned perhaps hundreds of years ago it was sheer essential elemental horse-play straight from bartholomew fair and the audience received it with rapture that was vouchsafed to nothing else 
the story would be too long to tell but briefly it was a dumb show representation of the visit of a guest the clown to a wife unknown to her husband the scenery consisted of a table a large chest a heap of straw and a huge barrel the fun consisted in the clown armed with a bladder on a string hiding in the barrel from which he would spring up and deliver a sounding drub on the head of whatever other character husband or policeman might be passing to their complete perplexity they were of course incapable of learning anything from experience at other times he hid himself or others in the straw in the chest or under the table when in a country district such as this one hears the laughter that greets so venerable a piece of pantomime one is surprised that circus owners think it worth while to secure novelties at all the primitive taste of west sussex at any rate cannot require them End of chapter nine